Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Psalm 12, to the 12th Psalm. Jude, I'm going to ask if you could close that door, just the, just the door closer to you in terms of glare. Psalm 12, it's the 12th Psalm. We've been going through our series on the Psalms, and we're going up to Psalm 15. Next week, we're doing Psalm 14. We're going to skip Psalm 13 for now because our brother Ben Bratcher will preach Psalm 13 on July 5th. Psalm 12, hear the word of the living God. For the choir director, according to the Sheminith, according to Sheminith, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for no faithful one remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. They lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. They say, through our tongues we have power. Our lips are our own. Who can be our master? Because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now arise. I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. You, Lord, will guard us. You will protect us from this generation forever. The wicked prowl all around, and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, that's our prayer, that your word would dwell richly among us, that Christ would be exalted, that we would be thankful that you speak, that we would hear your words because you already told us right here this morning that your words are pure words. Your words are refined like silver, refined seven times over. And so we ask that your pure words would take the blinders off of our eyes, soften the hardness on our hearts, unstop the deafness in our ears, bring down the defenses in our souls, that we might receive your word and want your word and love your word and live on your word. We are hungry for you, Lord Jesus. Show us yourself. Give us yourself. Commune with us now. And for those who don't know you, who are not yet Christian, who do not live with your joy, hope, and love, we ask that you would give them life through your pure words even this morning. Help me to preach your word faithfully. Help us to listen faithfully. For apart from you and your power and your grace, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christians and all people of goodwill want to want to continue living their lives with no one bothering them, just live a peaceful, quiet life of doing good with no opposition, no craziness, just leave me alone, let me do my good, let you do your good, and let's just move along and mind our own business as we all try to be generally good and loving people. 
As Christians, we want to do that at the same time pouring out our lives for Jesus. But it doesn't work out that way often in our lives. We get disturbed and attacked, and um, we get barriers and hindrances in our way. You don't have to be a Christian to get these hindrances. J.K. Rowling, is it Rowling or Rowling? Rowling. J.K. Rowling, I look right at the Harry Potter fans. J.K. Rowling wrote an essay recently. Have you seen that essay? Have you heard about that essay she wrote recently about um, women and her, her uh, skepticism towards the transgender movement and her critique of it? She wrote an essay this week recounting, and that essay, critiquing the transgender movement and talking about her pain, um, she, in, that, in that essay, she was recounting, and even by recounting her, her, her situation, she's actually inciting more and inviting more threats of death. She talks about being threatened. She got death threats, um, threats that people would beat her up and punch her in the face, uh, calling her vulgar names that I cannot repeat from this pulpit, burning of her books, silencing her. She would um, hide from social media and take a break only to come back on for, for a brief moment, and then get as soon as she's back on, social media bullies would come and swarm her to try to silence her. And it's not only in social media. You could easily turn that off and delete an app from your phone. But they flood her emails and letters to her, location, her, her inbox. I mean, like physical letters, just flooding her as well. She said it's like children in the playground bullying those around them and just trying to silence them by calling them names. But this, but this is not children. These are adults, and these threats can, be, can affect your mental health, your peace. We have people around us who lie and spread plausible arguments, plausible to our culture in every generation, plausible arguments that would threaten us and intimidate us, cancel us. There's a canceling culture going on today as well. And what that does for us, for everyone, is living with fear. What if I say something wrong? What if I like the wrong post or the wrong tweet? What are the people from different tribes going to think about me? It doesn't have to be only online. It could be things you say to other people. You could get reported and you could fear losing your job. People have lost jobs. People fear physical pain because there's threats. There's the fear of the threat to your own life the fear of being mocked and written off, the fear of being labeled with a label that you can't ever erase from your record publicly. This is scary. It can be scary. And so we can be paralyzed by this fear. The good news from this passage is that you don't have to be paralyzed by fear. You don't have to be paralyzed to the point where you disengage when you trust and think that God is leading you to engage. You can, and here's the main goal of this text, with deep-seated confidence, press on when you're pressed on. With deep-seated confidence, you can move forward. You can press on when the pressures around you press on you. So, the main goal again, one more time for those taking notes. With deep-seated confidence, press on when pressed on. And I'm getting the, the idea of deep-seated confidence from verse 7. The goal is to get to verse 7 where you can say this with deep-seated confidence. You, Lord, you will guard us. You will protect us from this generation forever. We are safe. We can move on. We can love. We can engage. And if God is for us, who can be against us? 
We know that verse, but we don't always feel that verse, right? It's not always a deep-seated confidence. And so we hesitate pressing on when pressed on. So how do we get this God-given, deep-seated confidence to love well when you're being opposed? There's three, three clues or three helps here from David in this passage, and I want to highlight them for you this morning. If you're going to live with this God-given confidence, you need to ask for salvation and judgment. That's verses 1 through 4. Ask for salvation and judgment. In verse 5, hear God's words for you. You need to hear and then verse six, verses 6 through 8, trust God's words for you. Trust God's words for you. That's the deep-seated confidence. So you need to ask, hear, and trust, okay? Ask God for salvation and judgment. Hear God's words, and then trust God's words for you. That's how you press on when pressed on, if you're going to do that with deep-seated confidence. Okay, so number one, Verses 1 through 4, look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Ask for salvation and judgment. Here in verses 1 through 4, now who wrote Psalm 12? You guys tell me who wrote Psalm 12? David wrote Psalm 12. That's what it says there in the prescript or the superscript. A Psalm of David, and he is overwhelmed. Why is he overwhelmed? Look at verse 1. We have a few clues here on why David is overwhelmed in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, he says, No faithful one remains. And the loyal have disappeared from the human race. No one faithful remains. David feels all what? All what? All alone. There's no one faithful left. It's just me. No one is loyal. And this idea of faithful and loyal, that's used of God. It's a play on words in the Hebrew here. It's a play on words where God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and but oh, wait, I'm sorry, abounding in steadfast love or faithful love, and truth. Or it says about Jesus in John 1:14 through 18 that through Moses was given the law, but through Christ comes grace and truth. Grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. That's God's covenant loyalty. And here, David is saying, there's no covenant man anymore. There's no covenant woman. There's no, there's no one who's filled with the grace, with the faithful, the faithfulness, and the loyalty. The loyalty referring to the steadfast love that stays steadfast in loving God no matter what. And the faithfulness sticking to the truth of God. There are no more covenant men and women. I'm the only one left, David says. And that's why he's overwhelmed. And you know, when you are overwhelmed... You often feel like you're the only, only one left. Have you felt that way before? Now, is that true that you're the only one left? No, even for David, it's not true. When you get to verse 7, he says, you will guard us. There's an us there. So David feels alone, but he's not alone, and he knows that he's not alone. But we feel that way, don't we? Every member of our church feels that way from time to time. For you who are single, I said this in our Bible study on Friday, for you who are single, you might think, if I get married, I'll never feel lonely. Married couples, is that true? Do you, is it, uh, like, are you perpetually free from loneliness once you get married? That's not true. There are times even when you're married and you're one with your spouse that you can feel all alone. Loneliness is a plight and a burden that everyone faces from time to time, even if you're not the only faithful one left. You're not the only covenant person left, and yet you can feel that way. And so we should encourage each other that we're not the only ones left. That would be a good church application to, to remind each other, like, hey, I'm here. 
I'm here for you. I love you. I'm praying for you. But David feels overwhelmed because he feels like no one faithful remains, even though he knows that's not true. In verse 2, why else is he overwhelmed? Everyone is what? They're lying to one another. Everyone lies. Now, you find lies on TV and don't you see lies on commercials, right? There's advertisements, and they always advertise heaven is what they do. Did you know that every commercial preaches the gospel, their gospel? So if the gospel is a clear face and you have pimples, then the the good news and the the end times is a clear face. And um, the problem of you is not sin, it's that you have an unclear face, and if you buy this product and you use it for this amount of time, then redemption, clarity on your face, right? 30 days or less, guaranteed. There are lies that are all over the, the world with commercials, advertisements for sexually explicit and lustful things, right? Advertisements for pornography sites, for other things. I mean, constantly on social media, there's immodest advertisements trying to advertise something that might be true, but even the way that they sell it can be filled with lies as if that's the good life. But lies are not only limited to advertisements, right? There are lies in politics. Do politicians lie or do they always tell the truth? Right? Politicians can tell the truth, praise God, but they don't always tell the truth on either party. I don't care what party you're in. Politicians lie. People lie politically. What about in court? I promise to tell, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And yet there's a crime if you lie under oath. It's called perjury. And people do it. People lie in the courts. People lie in government, not just on politics, but even the government can lie. Those calling themselves, um, um, those who are calling themselves Christians can lie. Churches can lie. Pastors can lie. Even more so in this social media age when we say things so publicly, we can be caught with lies. I mean, I'm guilty of one lie, and it, either way, whichever, and you don't have to agree with me on this, either way of the position, because I switched sides, either I was lying in the past or I'm lying now. I used to believe that ethnocentric oppression towards African Americans was not a massive problem in America affecting everyone. I used to think that. And I would think and teach in that way. And now I don't. I believe it does exist. And I believe it's a problem that, that we have to face. Well, either with PJ before or PJ after, one of the PJs is lying, was lying, or is lying, right? So even pastors can lie. Not intentionally necessarily, though we can intentionally lie as well. So everyone lies. What else? They lie to one another. They speak with flat, and that lying is empty talk. They speak with flattering lips. That's the idea of smoothness. And that's what flattery does, right? Flattery just smooths, it, it, it just puts your words so smoothly into someone's mind because you're flattering them. You're making them feel good. And so there's a smoothness to the flattering lips. But the flattery, flattery is different than encouraging others with truth and evidences of, of God's grace, right? Flattery is manipulative. You're trying to build them up so that you can get something from them to your own selfish gain. That's flattery. It's smooth talk. And everyone is flattering with their lips and they're encouraging each other with, you're, you, you are, you're right because you take this social position, or you're right because you have this position, or you're right because you're from this political party, or you're correct because you're part of this tribe of Christianity, or whatever the case. There's a lot of flattery that goes around outside the church and in the world and inside the church. Smooth talk. And then it says here, everyone has deceptive hearts in verse 2. Now, deceptive hearts is not just a heart that wants to deceive others, 
A deceptive heart is also a heart that speaks sincerely but is deceived itself. Do you guys get that? So that's unintentional deception. The, their, their heart is deceived, and so they speak what they think is true and right and good, but it's deceptive because it's wrong even though they think it's right. So, for example, Eve giving the fruit to Adam to eat in the Garden of Eden. Eve did not think, hey, eat this and you're going to die. She thought, I bit the fruit. I'm not dead. Here, Adam, have a bite. Adam could have waited for just 30 seconds, like, let me just see. Let me see what happens here first, because God said you will certainly die. So she takes the bite, and he might observe for a little bit. You look okay. You must be safe. So she gives it to him, thinking she's speaking the truth, that you're not going to die, perhaps, and yet they died. So a decept- speaking with a deceptive heart is not only intentionally deceiving. It can be unintentionally deceiving when your heart is deceived. And that's all around culture. I'm, so in other words, when you see people in the world speaking to things, it's not that they're always intentionally lying. They can be unintentionally lying and deceiving. I mean, I'm even guilty of this myself. There was, a, and my wife gave me permission to share this, but I, I had a lustful temptation that I gave into in my thought. And um, I, I was on Saturday night, not last night, but um, the, a week ago, and I shared it with my accountability guys, asking them for praying and confessing sin and telling them to pray for me and hold me accountable. And then I didn't want to tell Francis. I was like, nope, I'm not going to tell her this time at least in my own heart. But then I had to talk to Ben Bratcher last week about him leading the Zoom meeting. Right before I was about to send the email, Ben's like, hey, can we talk right now about the Zoom meeting? So like, yeah, we could talk. So we're, we're talking face-to-face. And then I'm like, well, I can't just send the email and not tell him face-to-face, so I, I have to tell him. And so we ended up talking for an hour or so. And um, I knew in my heart I didn't want to share with Francis. So there's a deceptive heart there of like, I don't have to tell her, or maybe not tell her now. And Ben just kept politely asking me questions just prodding and just, you know, just, just talking, just keeping me on the phone, right? Just talking and talking until, like, the deception finally just rose to the surface and was exposed, and God gave me enough grace after a longer conversation to, to just be like, you know what? I need to just say it. I need to confess now or else um, I might be feeding deception in my heart. So we could have deception in our hearts. Christians can. Pastors can. Non-Christians can. It can be intentional. It can be unintentional. And David sees this everywhere, and he's discouraged. He's overwhelmed. Not only do they speak with deceptive hearts, look at verse 3 and verse 4. He says that they speak in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, they speak the tongue that speaks boastfully. And what is their boasting? Verse 4 is their boasting. They say, through our tongues, we have power. So there's the boast. We're powerful with our words, with our tongues. Our lips are our our own. Who can be our master? So what's their boast? We're powerful. Our words are powerful. No one can shut us up. No one can tell us what to do. We have freedom of speech. No one can tell me what I can and cannot say. I'll say whatever I want, whenever I want, and it's powerful. My tongue is powerful, and no one can master me. There is no one who can be a master over me. My tongue is my own. Is your tongue your own? Did you make your own tongue? Are you the creator of your mind? Are you self-created? We know as Christians that God created the world, and God created you, and your tongue is not your own. And you do have a master, Christian or non-Christian. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is your master. He is your creator. Your tongue is not your own. Your mouth is not your own. 
you can't just say whatever you want. But then they might say, but I do. I do say whatever I want, and I have power with my words. Words are, so, so they boast about their power, and are words powerful, yes or no? Is the truth powerful, yes or no? Are lies powerful, yes or no? Yes, they are, right? Lies are powerful. They're not as powerful as truth because they won't endure, but lies can have power for a season, can't they? Until they're exposed. Actually, they are, they are completely powerful until they're exposed. Because when people believe a lie, they're under the power of that lie. And only when the deception is uncovered can they be freed from that oppression of the lie. Words are powerful. Listen to James 3.6. What does James 3.6 say about the tongue? Let me turn there. James 3.6 says, And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members, our body. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Your tongue is set on fire by hell. It's a fire, and it causes fires. Your words, words in this world do not only distort truth, they wound people. They don't only wound people and distort truth, they also can shift and overthrow a, a, a whole society's culture, right? For good and for ill. Nazi Germany, what was Hitler's greatest strength? His tongue, his words. It was his words. He was a charismatic preacher of what he taught. You could sway a whole country eventually. Slavery was taught with words. Anti-slavery, the, the overthrow of slavery was a war of words, wasn't it? Pro-life, there's arguments for the justice for the unborn. Then there's arguments and words for women's rights as the cover for being, being able to murder a fetus, which is, we'd say, and is a human life. Pro-marriage, marriage is between one, one, one man and one woman. Sexuality should be in the marriage bed. The gender of a person is their biological, their birth, their birth, um, their biological gender. Or their biological sex is their gender. That would be pro-marriage and pro-gender, at least from the biblical side. And then there's the other side that's pro-LGBT. And even within that, it's fighting, as I talked about with J.K. Rowling. So through our tongues and our words and our communication, we and they have power. With your words, with their words, they have power to exercise, uh, they have power to exercise for their own self-exaltation, for their tribal or group exaltation, for the belittling of God, and the detriment of those who are made in His image who do not fit in their group or their tribe or their party. Words are powerful. One study found that by the time, um, I'm quoting here from, and I think I, I might have shared a part of it with, with the church on Facebook. Um, let me quote here from Brian Fickert. He talks about um, the poor versus the rich. One study found that by the time the, um, kids entered kindergarten, children of professional families in the upper class America had heard 32 million more words than the children of parents on welfare. Similarly, parents with professional degrees annually give about 166,000 verbal encouragements and 26,000 verbal discouragements to their children, while parents on welfare give an average of 26,000 encouragements and 57,000 discouragements. That, that's a system they grow up in in the home, and that affects their lives. It doesn't determine their lives, 
but it affects their lives. Words are powerful. Martin Lloyd-Jones has famously written about how you plant active ideas in yourself and they, they, they bear fruit. Here's what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from the 20th century, said. He wrote, The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. So you allow yourself to talk to us instead of you talking to yourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it, he says. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized, he says, he asks, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that came to you, that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Words have power. There's a book by uh, a non-Christian, but a really helpful book that I've heard some podcast interviews. Call, I think the book is called Tiny Habits. And one of the habits, he really just helps you think about habits. But um, one of the things he says in it is, um, the one habit he prescribes to everyone is, as soon as you get up in the morning, before you put your feet down on the floor, say, today is going to be a great day. Just say that, and then put your feet down and get off your bed. Um, that's not Bible, but it does have a good effect on your life. It has for me. I, I would recommend that habit. And today is going to be a great day. And as a Christian, you can say, in Christ, God is going to work all things together for good. God is going to be active today. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great Lord's Day today. Just saying that out loud and speaking to yourself rather than listening to yourself, it can change you. Words are powerful. And the words here that David sees are discouragingly powerful. Another example of the power is, at least in our culture today, have you heard of the Nashville Statement? If you're a newer member, you had to read it before you joined our church. The Nashville Statement, it's in our members' um, uh, new members' packet for the membership considered class. It's a statement on marriage, sexuality, and gender. And it's just basic biblical truths. But if you look up the hashtag Nashville statement on social media and see what people say about it, so it's, it's pro-marriage, pro-biological gender, pro-sex in marriage. Um, for those who, for the, with the hashtag or those who perpetuate it, it has been called, and those who believe it have been called homophobic, murderous in their theology because they're literally killing people with hate. They, that's the words they use, that you're hating people, that you're murdering people. If you're against abortion, then they would say with their words, you're against women. If you're against systemic racism, or what I would say is a better term, at least if you're going to use biblical categories, I think it's a fine term, ethnocentric oppression, then you hate America. And you're divisive and syncretistic, abandoning the gospel for a social false gospel. Those are words that are spewed out of people's mouths, sometimes with sincerity, sometimes with insincerity. But those words are powerful. They affect the way people think. And so David is discouraged because he's overwhelmed. Now let's look at David's two prayer requests here before we get to the second point. David prays for two things in verse 1 and in verse 3. Look at verse 1. One word. What's his prayer request? Help. Help, right? Help, Lord. Deliver us. 
deliver me, save me from this craziness, from this crazy world. This prayer is for a prayer of deliverance or, or salvation. Now, when you hear salvation, you think of salvation from our sins, right? Rightfully so. That's not the first instance, especially in the Old Testament. When they say save us or help us, they're talking about help me from this moment. Help me from my attackers. Help me from these lies that are oppressing, oppressing me. Now, that is connected because in verse 7, he's going to say, you're going to protect us from this generation forever. So it's an eternal salvation. So you can't limit it just to the moment. But when you're reading the Old Testament, often it's the moment that he's praying for salvation for that's connected to eternity. We as Christians today, not wrongly, but as Christians today, we think of the eternal salvation first, and then we think of the moment. And that's okay. But if you're going to read the Bible well in the Psalms, just know that David is thinking first of the moment before the eternal salvation. But that's a prayer request. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by this generation. Please help me. Help me. I'm the only one left. Help me. That's his first prayer request. His his second prayer request, that's a prayer for salvation. Then the prayer in verse 3 is for judgment. He says, may you, Lord, may the Lord, covenant-keeping God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, may you, the Lord, cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. That's kind of crazy. That is a vulgar, or not vulgar, that's a violent picture. What is he saying? Cut off their what? Cut off their lips. Take their tongues and cut their tongues out. Cut off all flattering lips and cut off their tongues. Now that might be literal. I mean, it's, it's poetic. It's a psalm. It's not literally saying that. But what is he saying? Shut their mouths. But, but the imagery here is, where's their sin coming from? From their lips and from their tongues, right? And so this is a prayer for justice. Why is this a prayer for justice? Because one of the cardinal principles of justice in the Bible, in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, is an eye for a, an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a tongue for a tongue and flattering lips for flattering lips. If you're going to sin with your lips, your lips should get cut off. If you're going to sin with your tongue, your tongue should get cut off. If you hurt somebody's eye, your eye should get plucked out. It's a prayer for justice, a just punishment for the, just, for the crime that was committed. Okay, so this is a prayer not just for salvation, it's a prayer for just judgment, righteous judgment, fair and fitting judgment. Cut off their tongues, cut off their flattering lips, shut their mouths, stop their words. Stop their words not only in eternity, of course, but stop their words now, God. Shut them up now. Shut down their social media accounts now. Unplug their megaphones now. Make them run out of batteries now. Erase their signs that they're posting now. That would be, in effect, the prayer request. Stop their false, flattering, deceptive, boastful words. Judge, Lord. Bring judgment. Application, pray for God to deliver you. Pray for God to deliver your church family and your friends and your neighbors. Pray for the salvation of those around you. Ask God to save them now from the current situation and the current oppression and problems there and from especially a final salvation as we pray for Christ to return as Savior and judge. Pray for God's judgment. Pray for God to shut the mouths of those speaking lies to oppress. Pray for God to convert unbelievers and for believers to grow and to be transformed um, even as they unintentionally still speak lies, flattery, and from a deceptive heart. Pray, pray, pray for the stopping of, of lies and deceptive, dangerous, damning, damaging words. Pray for final judgment and pray for current judgment, temporary judgment. Church families, share your burdens with one another. David is overwhelmed. 
and he's calling for prayer, you guys should share your burdens with others so you can know you're not alone and then pray for each other. Pray for emails, send emails to each other, pray for one another, pray with one another. Come tonight to our drive-in evening gathering where we're not only gonna take the Lord's Supper for those who are, of you who are safe, bring your own crackers and juice if you can. We'll provide for those who can't. Um, but we'll do that tonight, but pray tonight. Come and pray with the church family. It's safe because you can stay in your car. And kids can come. Kids can't come yet here in the morning unless you're being sent to another church soon. If you're not a Christian and you're listening, thank you for listening. Seek the truth so that you might find Jesus and your true boasting, your true praise, true fulfillment, true power in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to trust in Jesus. Keep seeking the truth because only the truth can set you free. And if you're listening to the sermon, you're hearing biblical truth, and we pray that it would set you free. Children and adults, but children, keep praying. Pray to God when you, think, when you feel all alone. Let me just say to children and to everyone, prayer is not a cheap application. Prayer is not a cheap thing to do. When you see these huge problems going on in society, and you say, you know what we need to do? We need to pray. And people are like, that's so cheap. Don't just talk, do actions. Prayer is the greatest action you can ever do because God can do in 10 seconds what you can't do in 10 years, right? Prayer is powerful not because you're powerful, but because the God you're praying to is powerful. And if God answers your prayers, you can change the world. God can change the world. God will change the world through your prayers. Prayer is not a cheap application. It's the greatest thing you can do for someone else. Do other things. Don't only pray, but don't be little prayer like it's just this cheap first step in your ministry to people. It's your greatest ministry to people. So praise God that He wants us to pray, that He prompts us to pray, that He's telling us, pray for salvation, pray for judgment. And He wants to use His omnipotence for us. So press on with deep-seated confidence in God in the face of a wicked and oppressive generation. Press on when pressed on. How do we do that? By asking for salvation and judgment. Secondly, by hearing God's word to you. Look at verse 5. Look at, listen to verse 5. Because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I'll provide safety. What does God see? God sees devastation. What does God hear? He hears what? Groaning. He sees devastation. He hears groaning. And God responds. But the first thing is that God sees this. I want you to say, uh, understand this, that God sees the poor and the needy. And they're called the poor and the needy, right? The groaning of the poor and the devastation of the needy. This is not, now is David, now David's either a king or he's a general before his kingship. Is David one of the poor and needy? Yes or no? How many of you say, when, he, when David is saying here, the Lord sees the poor and the needy and he's going to guard them and, and uh, rise up for them. Does David consider himself one of the poor as the king and the needy, or does he not? How many of you say, yes, David, just here, I'm not going to look on Zoom. I guess you guys could see who's voting on Zoom there. But how many of you say, yes, David includes himself in the poor and the needy? Raise your hand. High. High and bold and proud, but not sinfully boastful. Okay, good. Put your hands down. How many of you say, no, David is not included in the poor and needy? Raise your hand. Wow, not so high. Come on, higher. Okay, minority here but a few of you. Is David considered poor and needy? Well, we have to define poverty. 
And to define, to define poverty, you have to define it biblically. When we think of poverty, we think of materially poor, right? That's not how the Bible defines it alone. Poverty is certainly, it, it, it can certainly include being materially, materially poor, but that's not, not the only way the Bible speaks of poverty. You were made to relate to God, to relate to others, to relate to yourself, and to relate to the rest of creation harmoniously and peacefully. But when there's a break in your relationship with God or a break in your relationship with others or a break in relationship with yourself, it could be a physical breaking of your body, a mental break, it can be an emotional break, it can be a psychological break. When you're broken inside, spiritual break, when you're broken inside, you're broken with God, you're broken with others, or you're broken with the rest of creation, you don't have the wealth and resources or the skills to, pro- to produce wealth and resources or the opportunities. When you have brokenness in any of those, you have poverty. And when it's overwhelming you, you're poor. So we talk about materially poor, but there's also spiritually poor, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3. So there's, poverty is an extreme brokenness in your life. And often these things interrelate with one another. So you can be materially rich and really poor, not just in your relationship with God, with other people. You can be materially rich and isolated, right? And, 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 and um, depressed, and separated from God, but you got money, well, you're, you're, you're poor. You're poorer than some people who don't have a lot of money but have a good relationship with God and others and with themselves, right? Money can't buy those things. So is David poor and needy? Yes, I would say he's poor and needy, especially if you're connecting verse 5 to verse 7 in terms of the, the answer to this prayer. He includes himself in it. How does poverty happen? Poverty happens, now if you're if you're conservative or liberal socially, you're going to emphasize there's a four-part answer to this. If you're conservative, you'll answer one way. If you're liberal, you'll answer another way. And if you're Christian theological, you might answer an, a, a, a third way, okay? But I'll give you all four, which includes all three of these. People are poor, broken, for four, th- for four reasons, four causes, and they all are like co- a, a combination of these. People are poor because of their own personal behavior, sin, their own personal choices and responsibility. And that's what the conservatives like to, to throw out there, right? Personal responsibility. But that's true. Personal responsibility does cause it. A second thing that causes it, and this is what maybe Christians would like to emphasize, well, maybe everyone would emphasize this one. There's no debate on this one. Evil people, evil and oppressive people, wicked people who want to take advantage of others. That can cause poverty, right? So you got personal responsibility, your own personal choice, then others sinning against you, and that can cause it. Everyone agrees on that. All all sides should agree with that one. Then on this side, the socially liberals will say, and I think this is true as well, that there are oppressive systems. There are systems in this world, there are cultural patterns and systems of thought and action in any community. When you get three people together, you, you start to have a system. Um, I'm going to date myself here. I don't know any of, of the more modern TV shows, uh, but the older TV shows, and not too old, but Lost is an old show, right? And there's our Gilligan's Island. Have you guys heard of Gilligan's Island? Anyone know that besides me and Ben? Um, okay, some of you do. Um, when you get stranded on an island, guess what happens? If you have more than one person, you get three people, you know what happens? A system happens. You build a system. How are we going to do things? Who's going to lead? Who's going who's gonna to follow? And a system happens when you get, when it's two people, it's just a relationship. But once you get three or more, there's a system of how these interrelations and the combinations work. 
And those systems of relating to each other can oppress people. Policies, cultural patterns, thoughts, assumptions, laws. And so that causes poverty. Okay, so you got personal sin, you got oppressive people intentionally, and you got systems that can be run by people who are unintentionally participating in the system, but it can also lead to oppression and poverty and devastation and plundering. And then the last one, which is what Christians will emphasize, should emphasize, is demonic oppression. Are demons real, yes or no? Do they, are they active in the church, in the churches? Are they active in the world? Yes. Not just in countries that are more spiritual, but even countries that are secular and scientific, like Esqueleto from Nacho Libre, who only believes in science. Even if you only believe in science, that's because demons are deceiving you to only believe in science. There's demonic oppression. And so poverty can come. It's a combination of these things that cause people to be oppressed and devastated and plundered. And they're not all equal. You need to know how these things work. You've got to read your Bible carefully. But we need to know that God sees people who are oppressed. He hears their groaning. He holds them accountable for their sin, but He still sees these things. And He acts. Let me say a critical word about critical race theory that's going around, especially in Christian circles. Critical race theory is unbiblical and dangerous because it's a system of thought. And if you hold to that whole system, you will end up denying personal sin. You'll only emphasize oppressive systems. And you'll even, you'll even say systems that are not truly oppressive but are speaking the truth in love are seen as oppressive. So, for example, if I start preaching that sexual morality is good and sex within marriage is good and sex outside of marriage is sinful and dangerous for you, people say, you're oppressing us with your morality. I'm not oppressing you. I'm freeing you. I'm trying to free you with the truth and love. Now, it feels oppressive because it's oppressing your sin, which is actually oppressing you. So, critical race theory or just critical theory in that regard will just have um, oppressive systems and anything that oppresses your own personal willpower of whatever you think you want to do is oppressive. And if you take that, you're going to deny the Bible. You can't, you can't hold that and hold biblical truth. On the opposite side, though, there are truly oppressive systems, as I've already said. And you can't just throw everything in a critical theory and not really realize that there's a complexity that causes oppression, personal sin, oppressive people, oppressive systems, and demonic oppression. Those are all real and in this world. And you have to know that and serve and love your neighbor in light of that. Because God sees the oppression, and He hears the groaning, and He will rise up. It says here, I will now rise up. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. I have a lot more to say about that. Way more verses here, but I'm moving on because I'm taking too long. God responds with a promise to action for oppression. I will rise up. I'll provide safety. It says in Psalm 3-7 that he'll rise up, Psalm 7-6, Psalm 9-19, but look at Psalm 10-12 just to get one of these verses. We've been covering the Psalms, but this has been a theme for us in the last few weeks. Psalm 10-12, rise up, Lord God, rise up, Yahweh God, lift up your hand and do not forget the what? The oppressed. Remember the oppressed and rise up and attack the enemies. Judge, Lord and then in, verse, in Psalm 12, verse 5, the second part, I will provide safety. God is a refuge. That's what it says in Psalm 11.1. 1. I have taken refuge in the Lord. 
Psalm 7, verses 1 and 2. Lord, my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me, or they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. God is our refuge. God is our rock. God will provide safety for those who long for it. Now, does everyone want safety? Yes, everyone wants safety and security. But not everyone wants safety and security from Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone wants His safety on His terms. So this, I need, I need to say this especially as we care about for the oppressed in our culture today. This promise is not for the oppressed of the world who will reject Jesus ultimately. This promise, now we should still care for all the oppressed. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to care for the oppressed. And we have to care for justice and righteousness because God is righteous. But the promise of final safety, of divine, divinely given safety, is given for those who long for the safety of Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's for God's people, ultimately. God rose up for Israel in Judges to, um, to overthrow the Canaanites. When they called out for God's help, God sent Judges. God rose up. God will rise up for us in the end when Christ returns. God rose up for us against Satan and sin in converting us. When we were blind to our sin and you were not a Christian, God rose up for you. And God provided safety for you by opening your eyes to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and showing you the lies of Satan so that you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ by the power of God's Holy Spirit and the power of God's Word. God rises up for His people. God provides safety for His people. So we sing songs like, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that had promised, here's the lies, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, you first, God, you loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state. You heard the groaning. You saw my oppression. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Because God will rise up and provide safety for those who long for it. Christian, hear God's promise instead of listening to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, instead of listening to yourself, talk to yourself. But I want to say something even before that. Before you even talk to yourself, hear God talk. That's the point of verse 5. Listen that God is the one who gives the promise here. God is the one who speaks. Hear God's promise instead of hearing yourself. First, you must hear God speak, and then you can preach to yourself and echo God's words back to yourself. Hear God speak, read your Bible, and then preach the Bible to yourself. Church family, read and listen carefully to public teaching. That's why we spend an hour on expository preaching, not just because I'm a long-winded preacher, but because we believe that the words and goal of the passage should control the words and goal of the message so that you're hearing God's words ultimately, not a pastor or preacher's words. That's our goal. We're not perfect in it. The Bible's perfect. We're not, as we'll, hear, we'll see in a second. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. Who are you listening to? Telling Christians to listen to God's words. Who are you listening to? Is it your political party? Is it your, your parents? 
Is it your teachers? Is it yourself? Who are you ultimately listening to? That will determine your life. Children, we have some children here, or they were here. Shiloh, listen up. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Children listening at home on Zoom, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Listen to God speak. If you're discouraged and you feel stuck in your sin as a Christian, here's some good news and encouragement for you. God is still speaking to you because God still loves you. God is still speaking to you. He still loves you. If God did not reveal himself to us, we'd be lost forever. Praise God he's not silent or hidden from us at any moment. So the main goal again, press on with deep-seated confidence in God in the face of a wicked and oppressive generation. Or press on, or with deep-seated confidence, press on when you're pressed on. How do we get this confidence? By asking God for salvation and judgment. Secondly, hearing God's word. And thirdly, trusting God's words for us. Trusting God's words for us, verses 6 through 8. Verse 7 is, is, the, is the goal right here. You, Lord, will guard us. You will protect us from this generation forever. So here David sees that God will guard and God will protect. He trusts God's protection. And that's what we want to do. We want to trust God's words for us. Now notice here, it's God who's protecting from this wicked generation. But how long does God protect David in verse 7? How long? Forever. So this is not just a temporary protection. This is ultimately an eternal protection. And to eternally protect David and God's people, David's people, from the wicked generation, where does he have to put the wicked generation to protect God's people? If you know the end of the Bible, he's going to bring his people to the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, which is the same thing. The new earth is the new Jerusalem. And where's he going to put the generation who oppresses and attacks? In the lake of fire and sulfur. Forever. The place prepared for Satan and his demons those who are not in Christ will be separated from God's people so that God's people will be protected forever. If you're not a Christian, what did I just say? What did, what did it mean by what I just said? I just want to explain this clearly to you. I just said, if you're not a Christian, you are going to hell. If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you are going to the lake of fire because God will protect his people from those who are apart from Jesus forever. And the reason why you're going to hell is not because you're worse than me or other Christians. You're not. We're all sinners. And God is holy. God will judge all sinners. But only, there's only protection from God's judgment in Jesus Christ. You have to unite yourself to Jesus. God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world to die for sinners, to live for sinners, never sinned, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. He died on the cross for our sins, took God's judgment, and rose from the dead on Sunday after dying on Friday so that everyone who repents from their sins and their own goodness and trusts in Jesus instead will be saved. They will be forgiven. They will be protected from the wicked generation forever. They will be protected from God's judgment. So Christians are not better than non-Christians, if you're not a Christian. Christians are sinners who deserve hell but are saved by God's grace. And if you're not a Christian, you too can be saved by God's grace this morning. If you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, God is calling you right now, right now where you are listening, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, and God will save you and forgive you and give you His Holy Spirit to live in you and to transform you now into all eternity when you're going to be protected from this wicked generation and from God's judgment forever.
Now here in verse 7, David trusts in the Lord even while he's being oppressed. He's praying for help, but he's still in the problem. He's still in the predicament. I mean, you could say, yeah, God's going to deliver us in the end. What good is it now when you're being choked to death or when there's a knee on the back of your neck? What good is it if you're being attacked now? God will deliver you in the end, but what good is it now? Can we really trust God? Well, verse 6 and verse 8 help us to trust God. So let's look at two reasons to trust God here before we close. The first reason why you should trust God's promise that He'll protect you and guard you and provide safety for you is, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. So the way you purify silver is you burn it. You burn the silver ore, and you just and all the dross rises to the surface, and you sweep that away, and then, and then your silver is purer. Then you can do it a second round and a third round. But here, the Word of God is pure like silver refined how many times? Purified how many times? Seven times. And in Hebrew poetry, seven refers to, it's a number of what? Perfection or completeness. To be refined seven times, what he's saying is that God's Word, like that silver that's purified seven times, is perfectly pure. What we'd call, um, not, so the, I, I looked up the purities of silver. The lowest purity of silver, according to Wikipedia, is German silver, which, has, which is um, 800 or 835 or 80% or 83.5% pure. Fine silver is the highest, and it's 99.9% pure. And God's word is not 99.99999% pure. It's seven times over, not six times, seven times over, which is the number of perfection and completion. In other words, God's words are perfectly pure. And so we believe here at BBC, here's what we confess in our confession, our, state, our confession of faith. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God, therefore all Scripture is authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. The Scriptures are the only sufficient rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. The Bible, this Bible is not the Word of God. This physical Bible is not the Word of God. The words inside are the, word of God, are the words of God, and the words inside are the Word of God. Now, we say the Bible is the Word of God, and I know what we mean by that. We're not talking about the physical Bible, so we don't worship a physical Bible, right? But the words that it contains, the words that, it, that, are, that make it up are the words of God, and those are pure. When we say we believe in inerrancy, we're saying that God's words are right, when they're rightly understood, they cannot err. They are always truthful. They're never wrong. And when we say God's Word is infallible, we're saying that God's words cannot fail in their purpose. God's words have a 100% success rate. I love this as a pastor. God's words have a 100% success rate. If you like baseball, Carrie, I don't know if you're on Zoom. If you like baseball, God's word bats a 1,000. He gets a hit every time he goes up to the plate. The word of God never misses. It always succeeds every single time it goes out. It always succeeds in what it's, uh, it's trying to accomplish. That's what Isaiah 55, 10, and 11 says, that God's word will not return empty, but it will always accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. So I could preach every Sunday, even though I'm, I mean, even though I'm not a perfect preacher, God's word is a perfect word. And when I'm reading God's words, and if I'm preaching it faithfully to whatever degree, it will always accomplish its purpose, to harden your heart or to soften your heart to bring judgment and damnation to you, or to bring salvation and hope to you, which is what our prayer and hope is for you. But God's words will never fail because they're pure. 
They can't fail. There's no error in them. Therefore, trust God's word for you. That's David's point. He trusts that God will deliver him because God said he would. And God's words are pure. Here's a second reason why we need to trust God even when um, we're in trouble. Look at verse 8. The wicked prowl or walk around, walk all around, and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. So you, this is going back to verses uh, 2, 3, and 4. The, the human race, um, they love what is worthless. Is that true of the world? Do they, do they love what is worthless? I mean, part of Caroline's prayer of confession today is that we love the temporary, fleeting, worthless things of this world. That's why David prays in Psalm 119, verse 36, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Because this world and we look at worthless things. And so the wicked here, they, they love what is worthless. Um, they, they prowl all around and what is worthless, they exalt. They love, they pursue, they live their lives around. But here's the argument. How does verse 8, how does that help us trust God? Here's how it helps us trust God. It's saying that even though God promises to protect you, God knows and acknowledges that there's still unrighteousness in this world. And until God finally wipes it out in the final judgment, it's part of God's plan that they remain. Does that make sense? Because the, 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 the reason you might doubt God, God protecting you is because you see yourself unprotected, Right? So let's just take Stephen, for example, or James, the Apostle James in, in Acts chapter 11. It might be Acts 11, I think, Acts 11 or 12. James is an apostle, and he, his head was cut off. They cut his head off. Did God protect him? I mean, when he was put in jail, did God protect him, yes or no? I mean, it looks like no, right? That's, what, that's why verse 8 is here, because you're thinking, okay, God said he's going to protect us, but then the wicked are still prowling around, and they're still exalting what is worthless. What good is it that your words are so pure when I'm still getting my head chopped off? Can I really trust that you'll protect me when my brother's head just got chopped off? It doesn't seem like I could trust you, God. How can I live with deep-seated confidence and press on when I'm pressed on when, you, when they get pressed on their head gets cut off? Verse 8 is telling you, telling us, that God knows that the wicked still prowl around. And it's part of God's design that they prowl around and that God will protect you even when your head gets cut off. God will protect you sometimes by delivering you from your head getting cut off. But even when you die, does God not protect you? That's what Jesus said here. I'm the resurrection and the life. Every, everyone who believes in me will never die. And then he says, and even if he does die, I, I, he'll never die. <laughs> That's what he says in John 11, 25 and 26. What do you mean, Lord? If I die, I don't die? I'm going to protect you, and you'll never experience death in a sense. Even in death, I am the resurrection and the life. You will always have resurrection life in you before you died, and even in the very moment of passing from, from life to death, even in that moment, your resurrection life will never cease, not even for a split second. You will always have life, and I will deliver you from death, even in your death. So does God protect us from death sometimes? Yes, and in death all the time if you're a Christian. I had more here on why God allows it, but I'm not going to get into it now. I had other Bible verses, but let me just say this. You can trust God even in a wicked world, even when Christians and those who are being oppressed continue to be oppressed. When God says, I will rise up now, when he says, I'll rise up now, look at verse 5. He says, I will now rise up. So you might say, well, PJ, okay, yeah, he's going to do it in the end, but it says, I will now rise up. In what sense is it now? How can God say, I will now rise up? How is God rising up now when he allows David to be oppressed? Or Uriah and Bathsheba to be oppressed when David committed sexual assault and murder? 
or when Stephen was stoned, or when James' head was cut off, or when Jesus died on a cross. I mean, if God allows Jesus to die on a cross, then how can God say that he's rising up now? Ah, Jesus dying on a cross? Did God rise up? Did God not rise up for Jesus while he was oppressed on the cross by his enemies? Did God deliver Jesus from his enemies? Was God sleeping or inactive, passively inactive, when Christ was hanging on the cross? Certainly not, right? God was not inactive. If God rose up now, now what if God rose up and called 10,000 angels to deliver Jesus from the cross? If God rose up now in that moment in the way that we might want him to rise up for us, if God did that for Jesus, would we be saved? No. And if God rose up now for you in the way you want to be, want him to rise up for you, if he, if he did it in your way, that might stop your temporary pain, but you might forfeit the eternal pleasure and goodness and reward God has designed for you in the trial he's appointed for you. So does God now rise up for you, yes or no? Yes, he says so, but not always in the way you want the now to look. Does that make sense? I want you to trust God in your trials because God will rise up for you, but not always in the way you want or the timing you want. And if you can't trust God for that, then you can't trust God for the cross because that's how God did it on the cross for Christ. He did deliver Christ. He raised him on the third day. But he didn't raise him while he was there on the third hour on the cross. That's when the wrath came down. So God will sustain us and deliver us even if we die. All right, let me close, conclude here. Press on with deep-seated confidence. Press on when pressed on. How do we get this God-given confidence? By asking for salvation and judgment, by hearing God's words, and by trusting God's words for us. Ask, hear, and trust. Now, we do that from time to time. The, the, more, the, the more you mature as a Christian, the more you do it. But we do that for seasons or for a moment. But how often have we been the liar, the flatterer, the one with a deceived heart, the boastful one who boasts about our power, our words, our opinion in a godless way? How many times have you done that? Or I have done that, even this week. We are guilty. None of us, even David who calls us to live this way, even David didn't consistently, consistently live this way himself. We are all doomed, and we all deserve the judgment of 12.3. We all deserve to have our lips cut off and our tongues cut out. We have not obeyed the way we ought to. But there is someone who pressed on righteously when pressed on with deep-seated confidence. Christ asked God often. He prayed to God often. He even asked for the cup to be passed from him. Christ heard God's word. Christ believed God's word. Christ trusted God's word. Even when his enemies mocked him on the cross, they said, he trusts God. Let God deliver him now. He was known for trusting God. And yet, God cut off Christ's lips as if he had the flattering lips. God cut out Christ's tongue. He crushed Christ's heart as if he had the deceptive heart. God judged Jesus for the judgment of sinners. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Christ never took another person's eye. But God would bring justice on Jesus on the cross. He would take out his eye. He would take out his tooth. He would cut off his lips. He would crush his heart. He would become the propitiation for sinners. Not because Christ ever sinned, but he took our place for our sins. And God raised them from the dead. And so now, because God raised Christ from the dead, in the power of Christ, we have the power to ask God, to hear God's words with receptive ears, and to trust God, and to press on with deep-seated confidence when we are pressed on by the world around us. Now we can walk with Jesus. So let us praise God and trust God 
so that we press on when we're pressed on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to hear you, to pray to you and ask you, and to trust you. Help us to keep loving you and loving our neighbors and loving one another, to press on when pressed on. Give us a deep-seated confidence, an unshakable confidence. You are our refuge and strength. You will rise up. You do rise up. You will give us safety. You will guard us and protect us from this evil generation, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, we trust you. Amen.